Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be talking all about synthesizers, but more specifically, the pioneers of synthesizers. Hello and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. Well, welcome, everybody. We're really thrilled to have you join us for another episode of the Music History Project podcast, which is all based on the oral history program at NAM. All of these interviews are from that collection, and we're thrilled to talk about some of our heroes today who have pioneered the synthesizer. Yes, that great electronic instrument that has bleeped and blooped in many of our favorite <laughs> songs. And um, I'm super excited because the pioneers that we have truly were are all legends. And it's really kind of an honor uh, for us to be a part of um, their story today, uh, bringing them together and talking a little bit about the advancement of the instrument from its early days and the first commercial available synthesizers to what's happening now. So I think it's gonna be a fun ride and we're glad that you could join us. Yes, this is going to be a lot of fun and we have a serious list of people in this episode. <laughs> um, all of the heavy hitters such as Don Buchla, John Chowning, Suzanne Siani, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Bob Moog, Malcolm Cecil, and that is it. Is the beep boop uh, the technical terms that they like to use? <laughs> I do believe so. I, I do uh, believe you can quote me on that, okay. the beeps and bloops. Um, I was just going to say that a, a really um, great place to start is uh, our first interview is Don Bukla of the Bukla Synthesizer. Um, uh, very famous for um, coming up with some amazing technologies at uh, UC Berkeley uh, in the uh, early 1960s and really perpetuating um, his career by reformulating himself over and over again. He just seemed to always recreate not only his products, but his, his company uh, over his long career. He was born in 1937. Uh, we lost him in 2016. And um, since I think 1999, uh, when we really were getting started with the oral history program, I sought to capture his interview. And I'm really glad that we did because um, without a doubt, I do believe he's a pioneer. And uh, among the things um, that Don gave us was um, the very first commercially available digital controlled analog synthesizer. I mean, that's a pretty big step from um, these guys at Bell Labs in the 50s trying to figure out, okay, how can we make electronic music and how can we control it and how can we uh, make it accessible? Uh, Don really stepped up in his laboratory and made that possible. And of course, the Buchla, Buchla 100 and the 500 series were very instrumental in the uh, adaptation of electronic music by a lot of pioneering composers, 
um, of course, Morton Sabotnik among them. So uh, I think you guys are going to love this episode because it talks directly to those people who pioneered these uh, great instruments. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to hear, like uh, Dan mentioned, we're going to hear from Don Buchla first and just hear a little bit about his background and kind of the evolution uh, that he went through getting into all of this stuff. Uh, very heavy background in physics and mathematics and all the things I personally don't understand, but <laughs> thank goodness he did because he was able to, <laughs> to make this amazing product for everyone to enjoy. Uh, so here first, we're going to listen to Don Buchla. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to us is that passion for music that people have in this industry. And you certainly have a great passion for music. I wonder where that came from and how that developed. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were growing up? Uh, no, I was a singular musician. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Your parents didn't play? No. And how did you get I know that's unusual. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of unusual. How did, how did you get to it? natural inclination. It's an easy thing to do and seemed the least harmful of any activities that I knew of as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up? All over the place. I grew over on, on the, in the U.S. Hmm. from California to New Jersey and every place in between. And what was your first instrument? Ah, piano, I guess, was the first thing that I learned a little bit of. Yeah. And where did your uh, your engineering background come from? Did you ha always have an interest in tinkering and so on? I was a physicist and I did my graduate studies in physics and in physics you learn a lot about applying uh, electronics. So. And when did you think you would combine the two? I didn't really combine them. I I got disgusted with physics. <laughs> Music seemed a lot more interesting. And tell me about those early days um, creating electronic music. What was your first endeavor? Well, <laughs> I had a uh, wall on the sack tape recorder and I was making my uh, music on that using a technique of music concrete, and that was the first instrument. So is that where you would actually splice tape and that sort mm -hmm. of thing? Yes. And I wanted a three-track tape recorder because I, I didn't want it, I, I found it. It was in the San Francisco Tape Music Center, so I timidly asked Mort if I could visit his studio, and he says, welcome, he gave me the keys. And so I did a lot of my work on the three-track. That must have been exciting. Mm -hmm. Quite different than what you were used to. Oh, yeah. I could overdub and simultaneous and do all kinds of things. And they were better quality. Mine was a poor woolen sack, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> and what did you want to do with that? Just continue to um, develop and design it? or? No, I was interested in... I was interested in music, and much more so than tape recorders. And I was surprised that they were using uh, bomb sites and physics, um, Hewlett-Packard oscillators and such things to create music. And I suggested that they build a uh, intentional musical instrument. 
And they thought, well, that's a pretty radical idea. And they got me a grant, and I built the uh, intentional musical instrument. Others had done much earlier things, but I wasn't aware of it. So, But they didn't do it quite the way you did it. You had sort of a different approach. Well, I didn't copy anybody. <laughs> and is this about the time that Morton Sabotnik had asked for help, or is this before that? No, Mort uh, helped get the uh, money to finance the first one, which I did it uh, on a $500 grant. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you find your uh, components for that first one? At typical retail stores, electronic stores. They were very available even then. Hmm. And I know um, people like... Um, Max Matthews was doing stuff at Bell and so on. Was that about that same time, or was that slightly after? That was slightly before. Oh. Yeah, Max did his music for, and several years before I was working at it. But his was more of a... No, his was computer music. Yeah. He wasn't building instruments. In fact, it takes them six hours to compose a one-minute piece or something. <laughs> They'd have to send their data cards off to Bell Laboratories or something to hear the sounds. They didn't have any data A's there. <laughs> <laughs> and yours was instantaneous. Well, I, I wasn't as ambitious as they were. <laughs> I wanted sound right now. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe as patient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a better word for it. Well, you know, there were some really interesting innovations that occurred in those first products of yours. Mm -hmm. What were they based on? A need that you had to make something different or just trying to push no, it No, I didn't have a need to make something different. I just had to make, make something that fulfilled my needs and hopefully the needs of others. It's turned out to work out. Were there um, envelopes and, and that sort of stuff in, their, in those early products? Yes. An envelope generator was one of the early ones. All based on oscillation? Well, there were oscillators also, but the envelope generators were based on envelopes ah. and control voltages. Slightly, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting to me is that, that history of what you were doing prior to Bob Moog. What is, your, what is your take on what your products and your concept was and Bob's? Well, the development of a synthesizer isn't a singular flash. It happens over a period of weeks, months, and years. So we were both working simultaneously, but with different goals in mind. I'm frequently analogized as uh, the West Coast inventor, and he's the East Coast inventor. <laughs> he had a um, he had a slightly different concept too. Did you? Mm -hmm. What was your thoughts about the, the marketing of it? Because his was slightly different. Well, we weren't in, in great touch in those days. Mm. Uh, communication between the coasts wasn't as wasn't as efficient and rapid as it is now. So I had. I was working in my laboratory in the West Coast. And he had a lot more contact with musicians and 
and uh, engineers and so on. I was kind of a singular person. Yeah, you didn't really have any assistance in those early days. Not much, no. Did you like it that way? I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know there was an alternative. <laughs> well, bummer when you found out, I'm sure. No. <laughs> the, um, the other thing that I was always intrigued with was the, the patch cord technology and how that that work. Can you explain a little bit about that process as far as creating sounds? Well, my idea was to create modules, each of which did a specific function. So there'd be an oscillator to generate signals and a, a gate or VCA to a voltage-controlled amplifier to modulate them and to apply the dynamics, and an envelope generator to apply the envelope to the VCA, and a mixer in case you wanted to make more sounds, and eventually some filters and things like that to modify and make the sounds more temporally interesting. So, but that was the, the interconnection of these elements could be accomplished in many ways, and you needed wires to do that. And I was familiar with wires, so I used wires. <laughs> But the filter functions, they, they've come a long ways. What were they like in those early products? Well, the first one was a, a four-channel bandpass filter. Then we went up from there in terms of complexity and density. You know, filters for envelopes, for example, were they specific for that function? No, the filters are used in the audio domain. Envelopes are used in the control the control level. Mm. Didn't do much filtering of the envelopes. <laughs> I was always um, curious about the, um, the early days of selling your product too because I know in, in, um, with your commission work uh, that was a little bit different than the ones that people would buy specifically for their house. And you did mm -hmm. a lot of that for electronic composers, for example. Tell me a little bit about that. Did, would you just be waiting for a critic to call you or something like that to occur? Or did you have product available for them? It was available in small quantities. <laughs> we tried to inventory things. But, uh, yeah, we built to specification, or my specification, but we built to others' desires. And then you were also um, involved with the um, installation. Would you often go and set them up? Sometimes, yeah. But uh, they're easy instruments to set up yourself. They haven't changed much, the 200Es very similar to the 100 that I was building in 63 and 64. That's interesting that you should say that because I don't think of them alike at all. I mean, there's hmm. so much more functionality and, and Well, yeah, things, the density, but, yeah. yeah. But the form factors, the power supplies, the patch cords are all the same. They're interchangeable now. Hmm. So what was the leap from the 100 product to the 500? Well, the 500 was a, a very large computer-based system. It was, <laughs> it was a giant leap. 
<laughs> Especially to consider um, computers at that time. Yeah, these were large computers and they were very expensive systems. And was but they were real time. And hmm. One didn't have to sound them out on punched cards or anything. Yeah, a nice leap there. But it must have been sort of um, a challenge to uh, utilize that computer technology at that time. Is that how you saw it? or? Well, it was a challenge, but it was, it was also easy. What, what are your thoughts on when uh, you started hearing people utilize your instruments out, uh, other than yourself to, to make music? What was that experience like? Well, I enjoyed it. I like to hear my instruments put into new situations with new compositional ideas. It was fine. And it sort of ushered out the um, music concrete in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah. As we brought in new instruments, they more or less replaced the tape recording in that sense. So there's a lot of cut fingers that have you to thank. <laughs> a lot less bandages yeah. being used. I tried that once. It's not an easy task. <laughs> well, someone pointed out to me that these new adhesives can be used to repair the cut fingers and without any toxic side effects. So it's handy to know. <laughs> do you do you have any favorite recordings that uh, use the bukla? Mm, Mort Zabotniks would be my favorites. Hmm. He's a very skilled composer, as you know. Puts together sounds in very interesting ways. Yeah, I always thought he worked really hard to utilize the bukla as much as it possibly could be. Yeah, he did. He still does. He has a new one. Oh, does he? Mm -hmm. What model is he? does he have? It's a 200E. Oh, 200E. One I'm just developing. And what do you see in that product that's different, that you're proud of? Well, there were three stages, basically, of the, of the modular system. Uh, one stage went through about 1969 or 70, and that was the 100. The 200 had a lot more advanced uh, uh, possibilities, just in many ways. I filled up the panels with controls, but the uh, wires were the same. Functionality was vastly increased, and that went for quite a few years. I about 20 years. And then I built the 200E series, which was another, was a 200 series advancement, but uh, took me about 10 years to think of it. And that one we stored patches, and that was an essential difference. And we came up with a few other essential differences, so it a, represents a big advancement. Well, sad, that's neat. And, and during, during your career, you've seen some pretty amazing technological changes that have assisted mm -hmm. in, in musical instrument making. I wonder if you could tell me some of what you think were the bigger um, advances. Well, the introduction of the IC 
and the use of op operational amplifiers was significant. And I'd say that the introduction of the microcomputer was uh, made things amazingly different. The 200 has a microcomputer in, in every module, and we, it's totally transparent to the user, but uh, it's essential to what I was trying to do with the 200, the 200E. Oh my gosh, you guys, I totally forgot to tell you that the first voltage-controlled uh, synthesizer module was also introduced by Dom Buchla. So I want to get my facts straight and not just say the <laughs> controller because, gosh, he did so much. And he was always, always changing. I mean, I love going to the NAMM show. I would always take time to go and check out his booth because he always had something strange going on. And it was always wonderful. <laughs> um, and some of you might recall in the earlier podcast, I did tell a very funny story about how we got our interview with Don, <laughs> who was, uh, he's passed now, but he was definitely the quintessential mad scientist uh, engineer. And as a result, he was not thrilled at the idea of being interviewed. Um, so he never said no, but he never said yes. So I uh, took that as a challenge. And year after year after year after year, I think, uh, well, we interviewed him in 2011. And I know for a fact that I asked him in 1999 uh, <laughs> when we were in Los Angeles for the Anaheim show, I mean, for the winter show. Um, and so there you go. T took that long. <laughs> and what finally worked was um, back then we had printed directories for the trade show. And I took out a whole page ad for the resource center and had a wanted poster for Don Buchla to be interviewed. And the person who brought me Don Buchla would get a steak dinner for two that I would pay for myself because that's how much I really wanted to interview Mr. Buchla. And so Sunday night, Sunday late afternoon before the show closed, I went over to his booth and sat down and he just smirked at me, walked over and said, do you know how many people have come by and tried to drag me over to you so they could get a steak dinner? <laughs> he says, I'll do it. Mercy, mercy. I'll do it. That was great. And so at the end of the interview, I says, okay, I know you got to go clean up your booth. The show's over. Um, I'll meet you over at your booth. Uh, I'm going to go get a gift card for, um, for your steak dinner. Cause you brought yourself. You, he goes, no, no, you, you hold off on that we'll have our dinner together. We'll, you know, I was like, what? We're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure I annoyed him, but uh, yeah, what a great guy. Uh, just uh, really a pioneer for sure. Uh, may I suggest uh, some listening? Um, if you are not familiar with uh, the Bukla 100, the best, I believe, uh, recording is from 1967 by Morton Sabotnik called uh, silver, silver apples of the moon. Um, it is um, a, the quintessential Buchla sound um, with all of its uh, nuances and, of course, some great composing with electronic instruments by Mr. Sabotnik, who, by the way, we've also been able to interview over the years. So um, that's that's my Buchla story. I feel like he probably 
loved the innovative way that you were like, I'm getting this interview. <laughs> I'm doing a wanted post. I feel like once he was realizing what happened, he was like, all right, like we're going to just do this. I hope yeah. so. <laughs> he was probably like, wow, what's going to happen next show if I don't do it? <laughs> well, speaking of pioneers, I, the, the next guy up is also um, just absolutely incredible. And with all the greatest respect, uh, his nickname is John Charming because uh, Mr. Chowning, Dr. Chowning, is indeed a uh, charming individual, a gentleman who just so happened to have been uh, the guy who gets all the credit and well-deserved for discovering FM synthesis. Not a small feat, uh, but a very, very huge leap uh, as far as the advancement of the uh, the synthesizer. Obviously, um, for those of you who don't know, FM is really uh, the driving power behind several key innovations in products, electronic products, including Yamaha's DX7, which exploded into the market in the early 1980s as being one of the first to offer MIDI, among others. But it was that powered by uh, FM synth that allowed a lot more features than ever existed before. Yes, very interesting stuff, very complicated stuff, as Ashley was saying earlier. <laughs> um, you definitely need like a physics or math degree to understand some of it. But Dr. Chowning does an amazing job of talking through the process. So let's hear from his interview. He's going to be talking about his discovery of FM synthesis and kind of how that all happened. So here is Dr. John Chowning. After studying with Boulanger, I went to and listening to a lot of music, a lot of these concerts at, uh, in Paris. I went to Stanford to graduate school and inquired about the possibility of doing electronic music of what we call the analog type, mm -hmm. this, this type. And Stanford had no facility. And I was, uh, you know, mo moderately disappointed. And a year or so later, while in graduate school working in contemporary, just traditional composition, Max Matthews had written an article published in Science that someone gave me. I didn't really pay attention at the time. I just a couple pages. I put it in a vest coat pocket and, and maybe a month later found it and read it. And it talked about his work at Bell Labs and their incipient uh, trials in, in using computers to generate sound. So I wrote him and visited him in August of 64. He gave me a box of cards, brought him back to Stanford, and I got a young math major, undergraduate, to help me install this and get this program going, and that was the beginning. Well, it, at the time in my mind, it was a poor substitute for what I had imagined would be the would be the optimum working life in electronic music, which would be, you know, gear synthesizers and and uh, you know knobs and buttons and patch cords and everything. <laughs> and what I realized quite quickly was that that learning how to program, becoming a even a, a only modestly accomplished at pro programming, in that case it was Fortran, that was the kind of the language of the day, one could learn to do 
in an abstract way, kind of conceptual way, all this engineering, not only patch cords, but actually build devices, you know, which most musicians are not able to do, you know, because that's special technique, soldering and putting transistors and resistors and all that stuff together on boards. It's not a compositional activity. It's not a musical activity. And I learned that, that programming would, could allow one to bypass that in a very abstract and very, uh, in some way, uh, also concrete way. One could put together from nothing vastly complex sound-generating mechanisms and procedures for controlling it. And it was a real revelation to me. And so I realized that, well, this was a bit of serendipity because having been forced to take what I thought was a second uh, path, you know, the, least, the less desirable path, turned out to be the future, of course, which was digital music and, and computers and all the power that exists in the computer as a general purpose device becomes available to one with a little computing expertise. So that's how I started. And I turned my graduate program from traditional composition into, into uh, computer music and relied upon the kind of the intrinsic richness of, of places like the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at Stanford that had all these disciplines represented, engineers, computer scientists, psychologists, philosophers, all working on the same computer to help me learn what I had to know to be able to make effective use of it. And I learned, and it was like a, uh, kind of like a Socratic abode, you know, it was like, it was all there. All you had to do was ask people. And they were interested in what you were doing, and I was interested in what they were doing, and so in the course of the natural interchange, the natural dialogue that comes with interesting people doing interesting things, I was able to tap on the essential knowledge that I needed to know, having to do with programming, acoustics, psychoacoustics, uh, engineering things. And so in a very real way, it was an incidental education. I informed myself with the driving passion being music. I mean, my interest in computers is great, but not for any other reason than my musical interests in it. So that was the beginning. So that's a long answer. It's <laughs> a great answer. Well, it's a well I, now I remember reading about um, your time working on the computer. Yes. How exactly did that spawn work in the labs for FM, for example? Well, FM was, a, was what I would call an, an ear discovery, an oral discovery. Uh, FM, let's say, vibrato you know, when a fiddle player does this, or a trumpet player does that, or a trombone player, and a singer, of course. They, vibrato is a special case of frequency modulation, where the pitch changes in time. And with the computer, I was experimenting kind of naively one evening with just vibrato, and realized that I didn't have to constrain it to vibrato as we experience it in the real world of acoustic instruments, that I could do things that instruments can't do, like make vibrato not five or ten times per second, but hundreds of times per second, and, and at very great depth, not just you know, a few hertz plus and minus some average, but as if it were up and down you know, this magical fingerboard on a fiddle or an infinitely extendable trombone uh, you know, tube, something. Right. So, uh, because the computer doesn't care, it just 
follows its function and it does it and does it within the limits of the parameters that one set. And what I discovered was that at some point I didn't hear pitch changing as a function of time, I heard something different, which was timbre. In other words, if you increase vibrato, if a fiddle player could just keep going faster and faster, we wouldn't hear la, we would hear kind of, well, then it becomes pulse-like, and then faster yet, it becomes a rich, it would become a rich and, and, and toned with lots and lots of harmonics quite different than the violin string by itself. Well, doing this with sinusoids, pure tones, was the classic case. It was simple to do, it was there, and it turned out that, that I heard what was happening when I made sort of consequential changes in, in the parameters, you know, simple numeric, you know, double everything, what happens? Well, went up an octave, double something else, the timbre became richer. And so I began taking notes on what I was hearing and pretty quickly realized that, that this was a, I was producing complex tones that changed in time with two oscillators, two digital oscillators, which is unheard of. And uh, so it was after that that I went to an engineer and explained what I was doing. And he said, well, let's go look at an engineering text and because it's FM is well known in the radio broadcasting and let's see what would happen if one were to do it in the audio band and audio rates instead of in the megahertz, et cetera. And so he explained how the formula worked and I then we went through it, and sure enough, we would hear these harmonics or these inharmonics, and they were predictable, and and it was all quite, uh, quite, quite well described, both in theory and in practice. I mean, they correlated. Right. So that was the discovery. It was, and it was an ear discovery. It wasn't, a, you know, an abstract conceptual discovery, which is curious, and, a, and I think a great comment on the the importance of the musical ear in, in these endeavors. It's a great shortcut to, to uh, in, in, and insightful often, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the, um, your ear discovery of FM is relatable to the megahertz? No. No, it's just, it's, it, it, my ear discovery was that uh, I didn't know anything about megahertz, how, how FM radio worked at that time. I just understood what I was doing. I was just making vibrato. But it turns out the carrier frequency in that case is in the audio band. It's the average frequency uh, around which the, the, the frequency is varying. That's all it was. So I had no idea what, a, what you know, I had some basic maybe ideas to how FM radio worked, but I didn't relate this to FM as a theory because I had no background in, in engineering and I didn't know about the theory and, and how to describe it. So the theory described quite accurately what I did, confirmed, let's say, that what I was hearing was indeed what the theory would predict I should hear. Let me ask you this, having this discovery and then actually applying it in the way you did is almost a complete leap in a di different direction. What was what was the thought process behind your discovery and what you ultimately wound up doing? Well, what I did in the lab was made compositions using this in software. Oh, okay. Right. And at some moment, uh, I guess when I had realized, based upon some, some analytical work that Jean-Claude Risset had done with Max Matthews at Bell Labs on the trumpet tones, I applied what he used sort of 
at what he had discovered as sort of timbral signature of trumpets, brass tones. Uh, one can generalize, in fact. Uh, and I realized that the, the, the mechanism for implementing that signature, which he had done through massive additive synthesis, I could do with great economy, maybe, I thought, with FM, simply coupling the amplitude envelope to the modulation index, which was the general idea that as the intensity of the, and the evolution of, a, of the attack of a tone, trumpet tone increases, so does the bandwidth. The harmonic, higher harmonics become more prominent as in, intensity increases. So that was a very simple coupling. When I did that, and within you know, 20 th or 30 minutes, had some quite acceptable trumpet tones, I thought, boy, this has to have an application. Because what I'm doing with two oscillators and a couple of envelopes, you know, I know cannot be done effectively by subtractive synthesis, you know, filtering complex waves, and can't be done economically by additive synthesis. It could be done, but not economically. So I contacted uh, the Office of Technology Licensing at Stanford. And actually, I'd contacted them before because I'd gotten another patent on spatial processing, Curious, which is now quite, quite, uh, quite the thing. But what was the premise behind that? That was the the. Uh, uh, illusory sound sources, moving sound sources, creating the illusion using multiple speakers. I, my model was four, uh, to create motion in space of sounds at arbitrary positions. And so I wrote a paper, did the research, and Stanford got a patent on that. And I was at a conference in Italy just a month or two ago, and one of the hot shots of the new Use my paper as a basic reference. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was in the you know the dumps of paperdom, you know. And so here it was because they're thinking rethinking this whole thing about spatial processing. You know, projecting sounds in space. I mean, we have this elaborate, you know, video monitor now with color and and we don't have three D yet, but that'll come. But we're given two little loudspeakers and the and there's no spatial processing. And and of course in in films they're doing this moving sound sources, which is what I did back in 1966. Yeah. So this paper was published in 71. And so they, I had already worked with the OTL so office. Went back to them again. Yeah, with this idea, I said, I think this must have some application because, I mean, you've got organs and, and I knew synthesizers were just beginning. Moog and Buchla were just beginning their work. And so they, uh, the OTL contacted Hammond. That's where I met Don. Do you know this story? No. Oh, okay. Well, Hammond uh, was had the B3 at that time. He was the I think it was the big organ manufacturer of the world, probably. And so that was the obvious choice for this technology. You know, or organs, or maybe Wurlitzer. And so we contacted or, or, uh, uh, Wurlitzer, Hammond, I think Lowry. Maybe any that there were. I'm sure we contacted them all. Hammond, and they all sent people to hear these examples that I did on, had done on the computer. Now, I didn't have a keyboard. There was nothing. It was a computer, <laughs> disk files, 
loudspeakers, so I would type in the computer and they'd hear this come out. And they'd say, well, how did you do that? I said, well, I did it with software. Well, what did you do? Well, that's frequency modulation. And so I tried to explain to them, well, they had no idea of the digital domain. You see, they were completely into components. Right. And they were thinking, now how, is, how are we going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so Hammond became quite interested, sent out their vice president, head of engineering. Then they sent Don hmm. to give an oral evaluation of, to report. What do you think? What does it sound like? And he went back with rave reviews. We hit it off. We were just together for a half hour, an hour, I can't remember. But we had a wonderful time together because we were both musicians. And uh, so I explained to him what it was doing, and he listened to the sounds, and he realized that, that there was some, this internal dynamism of these sounds was, was unique, couldn't do it any other way. And so he reported that he thought this was really something. They sent out another person, as I remember, a woman, maybe he'll remember, uh, also a kind of a demonstrator for the company, mm. as I guess Don was at the time. And she went back and reported. Then they sent some working engineers, like two guys, older gentlemen, who would, who would be the ones who would design and build such a device, mm. circuitry. And they, I don't think they understood. The, they understood what I, because they understood vibrato, they understood FM, but they didn't get the connection somehow that, that this was being done. They didn't understand digital. So let me ask you this. Uh, I think I may have lost something. Your original uh, concept in, um, involving the organ companies was to make the process of your software accessible through a keyboard? Well, I had assumed that they would build devices that would do it with special purpose tone generators. And in other words, using the computer program as a model for building devices to, to do this FM synthesis. That's what I assumed. And, uh, and in fact, that's what happened because there was no processor, general purpose processor at that time. Mic there were no microprocessors. <laughs> this was pre-microprocessor. So the idea of doing it in software was not, was not a consideration. So um, then they were offered an option, and I, don't, I think they declined it. They decided that they were, it was not in their interests. And that was it. Stanford didn't know where else to go. Then somebody re read, I think the director of the OTL, that Yamaha, which had a very small presence at that time in the United States, and I think it was only pianos, and that it mentioned that they were build, beginning to build synthesizers, and they built electronic organs. Huh. But their, most of their market was in Japan. Right. But it, it, it was the biggest company on earth. So. They contacted on a fluke, contacted Yamaha in L.A. Contact them? No. O OTL. Off, OTL. Yeah, okay. contacted Yamaha and said that we have this example of, uh, of you know, synthesis by digital means and we'd like, you, we'd like to know if you're interested. We didn't know at the time that they were already doing research. I think uh, Ralph Deutsch, maybe, is a name perhaps you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure who worked for Honeywell, no, uh, 
uh, not Honeywell, but a big electronics firm. Uh, anyway, he had this idea that was actually just added of synthesis. Hmm. Table, table lookup synthesis. But, but it was after. That came after, but I think, yes. They were kind of working yeah. on it. Yeah, but, but they had heard about it in Japan, and they, the engineers there were working on on general purpose, you know, summation synthesis. And <clears throat> so they had an engineer passing from Japan to North Carolina, maybe where they were building pianos, back to LA. He was about to go back to Japan and send him up for a day. Mm. His name is Ishimura, who just retired as president of, of Yamaha. Right. Yeah. So Mr. Ishimura came. And what uh, his name is? Was he the president at the time? No, he was just a lowly engineer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, good one, but just a low-level engineer. Right. No, he wasn't president. The Kawakami was president oh, at the time, okay. senior. And so he came up, and in about ten minutes, he understood what I was doing, <laughs> because they were already. He was familiar with digital. He knew what I was. You know, he knew how to program. He knew, saw what I was doing. He understood. That how this worked, what I was doing, and and I think was was really really impressed. And was so, the relief that somebody understood what you were doing. I was, yeah, <laughs> finally, somebody. So he went back and reported, and then they that began the contact that then developed over. I think they signed an option maybe in in seventy four or so, around there, and uh, and then had a. A prototype going a year later. Wow. They had started building, I think, in '73, but they had it going when I went there in '75. Hiro Kato, and and who is now of high-level manager and on board of the, he was just a low engineer at the time too. So after '75, what was your involvement? Well, I went over there probably I don't know 20, 25 times over a period, the period where they were. 75, say, until 83 or so when the DX7 came out. So that was Dr. John Chowning again, uh, talking about his uh, background and work with Yamaha and what Mike was saying earlier. He actually does a decent job where I almost understand it, <laughs> <laughs> which is saying something. <laughs> but great stories. And I just, um, I love his work with the Yamaha and that story of going there and, and doing that research. And you can just really tell that passion that he had for it and how excited he was. And, you know, we can have such a great conversation with him. It's just really, really cool uh, to think about what he's done. I mean, the changing of the waveforms and harmonics as well as inharmonics and um, just how he explains all that. And it's really neat to think that you can point to one individual and say, oh, yeah, you did that. Mm -hmm. uh, just really, really super cool. Um, some recommendations. Um, I mean, if you listen to any music in the 1980s or from the 1980s, you definitely heard uh, John Chowning's contribution to the synthesizer. There's no question about it. Um, some of the songs that feature the DX7 that uh, I think do a very good job in um, showcasing its abilities. Uh, one is a song uh, by AHA called Take On Me. Uh, Great DX7 in there. Uh, Out of Touch by Holland Oates, also super, super cool stuff. And um, 
And if you still don't know what the presets sound like, um, <laughs> you got to check out the theme song for the TV show Doogie Hauser because that is all about the presets of the DX7. <laughs> so basically, just the 80s in general. Just listen That's to the 80s. That's pretty much it. Yes. And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, moving forward, our, our, the next interview we're going to hear from uh, is Suzanne Chiani. Um, and we actually did a full podcast on her, uh, episode 81. Um, and she is just super interesting, a lot going on with her. We also have her full interview posted on the NAM website. So if you want to check that out, you can head to namnamm.org slash library and search for her name and it'll pop up for you. You know, she is so endearing. What a wonderful person she is. And she's become such a close friend of us here at the uh, the Resource Center at NAM. Uh, I believe she responds to every one of our newsletters. Um, she's uh, always help, helpful in connecting us with people. And I have to sometimes remind myself, she is the pioneer behind electronic music and sound effects. All the commercials that we have heard um, again, in the 70s and 80s, were influenced by her um, in one way or another. If you heard some electronic instrumentation, you probably heard her work. And uh, in just to work with quadraphonic sound and how she pioneered that entire area for electronic musical instruments is just unbelievable. And um, and she's a super awesome person, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really fun to think there is a full package there, you know? She's just, she's really great. And um, so I hope that you're gonna enjoy this next segment. What is she gonna be talking about? She's gonna be talking about her time at UC Berkeley and meeting up with Don Buchla, um, and then some more work that she did um, in the electronic music field. So here is Suzanne Chiani. When I was in college, I was afraid to continue in music. I, I wanted to go to law school because I, I thought, well, I'll never make a living, mm. you know, as a composer. And uh, my music professor refused to recommend me for law school. So I took my law boards and I was supposed to get a recommendation from the professor of my major. And I think it was he, Hubert Lamb, who uh, connected me with UC Berkeley because I never applied there. And I got a full fellowship, so they paid me to go there. And uh, so I so I went. And it was the perfect place for me to be. Why do you say that? Because it was 1968, and I went from this very, you know, sheltered, Wellesley, yeah. beautiful campus to the center of the free speech movement and, uh, you know, tear gas and protests. And, uh, and I met Don Buchla yeah. almost well, not right away, but very soon. And uh, can you tell me? Do you remember the circumstances of meeting him? I do. Um, I the music department at UC Berkeley was right next to the architecture department, and um, a friend of mine in architecture uh, was the TA for Harold Paris, who is a sculptor. And when Harold saw that I was involved in music, he said, "Oh, you have to meet my neighbor." So he had a big loft on the Oakland waterfront. And one night he took me to the, you know, the loft next door. These were big warehouses in the middle of no place. And it was Don Buchla's studio. So Harold Paris, the sculptor, introduced me to Don Buchla. 
And I entered that space and saw, you know, this uh, cityscape of modules. Yeah. You know, he had just walls of Buchla modules. Yeah. So when I finished school, I, um, I went to work for him. Had you had any uh, exposure to electronic music at that point? You know, um, there was a little inkling of it. When I was at Wellesley, we had a partnership with MIT. Mm -hmm. And one night, um, our music class went to MIT. And the professor there, this was like in 1967, was trying to get his computer, the big you know, university computer, to make a sound. A sound. A sound. A sound. And I, I heard that little sound and I thought, you know, something triggered in my brain. I didn't know, you know, what this was. But I was searching for it after that. So when I saw Buchla's uh, set up there and heard, you know, this, I, I mean, it was so new to me. I, I really hadn't heard of it even. Um, I did, while I was at uh, UC Berkeley, take a course with Max Matthews. So I would drive down to Stanford University at four in the morning, and uh, I studied with Max Matthews and John Chowning at the Artificial Intelligence Lab, which was the very, you know, Max was, of course, the father of computer music. Mm -hmm. And he was there for a summer teaching Music Five. And John Chowning was, at that moment, discovering FM. No. I was there. No. You know, I remember his, he was drawing those sine waves, you know, yeah. and explaining this, you know, multiplication. And uh, so that was like being in the right place at the right time, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. How, did the, how did Don Buchla and these other people in this kind of burgeoning electronic scene interface with that greater uh, scene around Berkeley at that time? always been interested in that. I know, I believe Don took some of his machines to different, you know, gatherings or whatnot from the emerging, you know, subculture or, or whatnot. Did you have any exposure to the, how that was working? Well, the university itself was not interested at that time in technology. It came just after I left, you know, that they started to be interested. I went to work at Don's um, well, I, I actually, my first exposure was at the Electronic Tape Music Center. Oh. That was housed. That. Yeah, yeah, it was housed at that time at Mills College. Mm -hmm. It wasn't connected to Mills. It was just housed there. Mm -hmm. So it was completely separate. And as a, you know, as an electronic musician, you could go in and for $5 an hour. A lot of money back then. You know, nobody even collected. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like, That's great. it was very free. And, you know, you'd go in and you'd stay up all night. I would stay up all night. And um, what were you doing? I was playing with uh, a Buchla okay. Series 100. Mm -hmm. There was a Moog there, an early Moog, and they had a lot of surplus parts. So they had, um, you know, U.S. Mm, government surplus parts from the army, mm -hmm. and you could, you know, experiment with things. And a lot of people don't realize that at that time. There was no keyboard really attached to a lot of this equipment, correct? Well, that's my big, you know, pet peeve, is that the keyboard did get attached to it because... Okay. Uh, I'd love to hear it. Can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, Don, to this day, you know, holds a special place because he was aware of the 
potential of electronics as a new performance uh, modality, as a new instrument that would require new interfaces. The problem was that um, people in general didn't understand electronic music. I mean, if you were, you know, back then, and you were playing a synth, like if I played the bukla, they actually couldn't fathom that the sound was coming from the machine. There was just no, you know, concept. So I think this was the frustration uh, for the marketing of the instrument. And Moog, who is his counterpart on the East Coast, you know, at a certain point, just to identify this thing to a larger audience as a musical instrument, they put the keyboard on it. And that, to me, was the beginning of the end. Because, you know, the keyboard was, as they say, an inappropriate interface. It was a mechanical system that, you know, generally created one event for one action. And the beauty of electronics was that, uh, first of all, you don't need a mechanical action because there's nothing being struck. You know, it's just a connection. And that when you make that connection, you could assign it to any number of simultaneous events. You could hit a key, you could stop a sequencer, you could start a sequencer, you could, you know, the key was a command that was uh, assignable in many directions. So Don always remained faithful. I mean, I did for a while have a, you know, Don did make a, an early polyphonic. Like a strip? Uh, no, it was actually had a, it, it, it was a keyboard. It was a little tiny thing, but it didn't function like a normal keyboard. You know, it was a, the reason he did it was that it was, you know, it could um, create the illusion of polyphony. Mm -hmm. There was still no polyphony, but if you created contacts quickly enough, you could get, you know, three notes at a time. But uh, so what happened was that um, synthesis, when it became popularized with the keyboard, the next thing that happened was, you know, switched on Bach, and people thought it was about the timbre. Oh, this can make the sound of a flute. This can make the sound of a violin. This can make, you know, so they started playing timbres on a keyboard. And it was never, to me, as a bukla person, about the sound, but about the way the sound could move. It wasn't constricted, it wasn't limited by a keyboard or by your 10 fingers. It was immediately liberated. It wasn't about the range of, you know, all the traditional instruments had those limits, you know, a range from here to here, a dynamic range, a breath range, how long a note could be. In, in electronics, it was a whole new world. A note could last for days. A note could go from here to here. It could go with lightning speed. It could create, um, what, you know, in, in traditional music, there was this fascination in academic music of becoming more and more complex. You know, if you were worth your salt as a composer, you wrote something that was almost impossible to play. You know, 11 against 13, or, you know, something that was like very, you know, un, uh, white note or whatever, complex. And the thing about the bukla, 
for instance, was that complexity was immediately something simple. Complexity just was no longer a challenge. If you wanted 13 against 11, you just made it 13 against 11, you know? So the whole idea of, um, you know, I, I always had a problem with, because I came in the, uh, through the academic system to some degree, but I never uh, liked the, the, um, the goal of academic composition. So I found electronic music to be very liberating, that you didn't have to compete in that senseless arena, and, and you could go back to, you know, I'm a romantic. So for me, uh, I embraced simplicity and tonality as like a new frontier. And a lot of composers did that. It's very interesting because mm -hmm. I don't think simplicity is a word that people would apply to early electronic instruments, like what we're talking about in the, the bukla and the early mokes. It seems like those were had, had accessibility issues. So that's the keyboard, correct? Yes. I mean, is there a way to balance that out somehow? Well, you know, for me, um, what I because I was really proselytized by Don Bukla, mm -hmm. you know, I worked with him and I really, you know, adopted his philosophy that this instrument was a performance instrument and um, that, you know, you, you develop new techniques. So he had something called the Multiple Arbitrary Function Generator. And uh, I'm just about to release, actually, some early live Buchla concerts from 1975. Wow. And I listened to this these performances and I realized I could I could probably never do that today because it's you know it's it's not simple in terms of the mental engagement that it involved and being able to perform it live it was very challenging mm -hmm. uh, I would have to uh, you know rehearse for months and mm -hmm. you know I would have certain patches in mind and then the trick was to get from one to the next one in a smooth way, and it all involved, you know, the brain, the central brain was the multiple arbitrary function generator, which allowed, um, it was like a three-dimensional sequencer. And to me, there's still nothing that reaches that um, potential yet, you know, that, that ability. You know, I see a lot of the new Eurosynths, the Euroracks, and so much imagination is going into this resurgence now in modular systems. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm coming back. <laughs> Are you? To electronics. I really? said, Yeah, I said I never would, but... Oh. Um, Were you able to go down to, to Hall E or see anything at mm -hmm. the show? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That was Suzanne Chiani, and uh, it's just... Uh, Another amazing story to add to our growing uh, storyline here about the early pioneers of the synthesizer. You're listening to the Music History Project and our interviews from the Oral History Program at NAM. And uh, for Suzanne, um, there are some great uh, recommendations I have for those who would like to explore her career a little bit more. Uh, in 1994, she did an album called uh, Dream Suite that's definitely worth checking out. Uh, she also had uh, another album called Seven Waves, 
which is one of my favorites. And um, luckily for us, back in 2016, there was the release of a series of concerts from 1975 that were finally released on CD and now available. And that they're simply called the Buchla Concerts. Um, and they're a series of live performances where she was using mostly the Buchla 100, but occasionally some other instruments like the 500 series. And um, really, really great stuff. Uh, I highly recommend those. Um, and interestingly enough, in 2017, she was awarded the Moog Innovation Award, which is an amazing segue to our next pioneer. Did you guys like how I did that? That was really right nice. <laughs> Except I called myself out on it. If I had just shut up and just let it go smoothly, it would just be this subtle amazement now it's just milking it or something i don't know but yeah bob moog is up next and um uh, gosh what what to say about bob um besides the fact that he is greatly missed in the music industry i i think of him every show where i walk past the area of the anaheim convention center where i first met him in 1998 i think it was um he, he, he had such a presence and such a following of people who admired him and recognized what his contributions were uh, to the point where his daughter, Michelle, our good friend, has started the Moog Foundation to keep his legacy alive. And she's doing an outstanding job. Her and her staff are fantastic. Um, you know, the, the first Moog synthesizer was introduced in 1964. Um, and by 1970, a more portable mini Moog was introduced. And I think that's the one that really kind of caught on to popular music, although it had obviously been used before. Um, his innovations, uh, I mentioned earlier, the pitch wheel, um, but um, so many other things like the envelope generator and voltage control all have to be given credit to, to Mr. Moog, Dr. Moog. Um, without a doubt. And I think that um, what propelled perhaps his career more than anything else is, again, something that I've been saying over and over again about these guys. He was so personable. He was just so sincere and down to earth and loved to talk to everybody at every level. I mean, he could talk mathematics and physics with the best of them, but still relate to people like me who uh, – couldn't have that conversation. <laughs> he came to the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad at the NAM headquarters, and I was selected to give him the tour. And that's probably one of a few times I can say I was definitely intimidated. I just <laughs> thought, uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> and um, he just asked questions that were unique to what our display was and what the thoughts behind some of the selections were. And I don't know if he could tell that I was nervous. I don't know, but he disarmed me so quickly and it was just really, really cool. Uh, one of the things that I will never forget um, is while we're walking past the theremin, which was uh, considered to be the, the first electronic instrument and certainly the inspiration for him to get involved with manipulating electronic instruments, he bent down and kissed the leg of this uh, original series theremin from RCA in the uh, 30s. 
and said, this is where it all started. And the mm. respect that he had for the origins of, uh, of his passion and his career uh, was something that you, you will never forget and um, was a part of everything that he did. And what's really neat is in talking to people in the next generation and, um, and beyond, I think that spark of his personality and his passion definitely continue. Anybody who was touched by him seems to have that. And I think that's a testimony not only to the strength of his character, but the innovations behind it. Yeah. And I mean, even just watching his interview, you you know, the name so well, I mean, it's such a iconic name, but to watch the interview, you, you get that personable feel and you can really tell just how passionate and how, how much he just loved, you know, figuring out how things worked and like, you know, making them better or doing something different with them. And you can really tell, um, and that just goes perfectly well with the stories you were just telling Dan. And I like that he kissed the leg. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump into his interview. Um, We have recorded a podcast episode all about Dr. Moog. If you can believe it, believe it, it was episode 11 (laughs) <laughs> Back when we were pretty new at this. So forgive any audio glitches that might be in that episode, but a good one nonetheless. Um, we also have his full interview posted on the NAM website. Um, but for now, we're going to hear Bob Moog talking about theremins and how he got into working with electronic instruments. I, I learned what a good theremin was uh, as uh, as I went along. When I began, uh, uh, I built my first theremin at the age of 14, and it was from a do-it-yourself project. A theremin was a big mystery back then. Uh, there were only a few, a few hundred in existence, and uh, I'd never actually seen one or heard one. And then uh, I think my mother found, uh, in a record store, she, she found an album of 78s that was on special sale because one of the records had broken. And it was a perfume set to music uh, by Dr. Samuel Hoffman, Harry Ravella, I believe. And then I knew what the theremin was supposed to sound like. But uh, it, it, uh, it, took, uh, it took me many years to learn what a good theremin was. And by and large, it was what Leon Theremin himself did. So uh, I made a lot of mistakes in the early days. Uh, and gradually uh, learned the same thing that Leon Thurman himself learned. You know, we just spoke about a keyboard on the synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the theremin is so in opposition with having a keyboard because all the notes kind of glide together. Mm-hmm. Um, did that change your musical taste at all to deal with theremins? Did it get you into microtonal music? I'm sure it did. It, uh, it certainly acquainted uh, me with, with the possibilities of changing the quality of sound uh, by electronic means uh, and of making sounds that were with gliding pitch that you don't learn when you play the piano. Uh, and, you know, gradually my ears did, uh, uh, well, I, for sure I, I developed a better sense of pitch. I never had that good a sense of pitch as a piano player. I, I could play the right keys, but if, if one key was a little bit out of tune, uh, it was not something I had to worry about. But in, in playing the theremin, you, you, you have to have a very good ear. And I, I 
I developed my ear as time went on. Did you ever try to change the timbral quality of the theremins? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I experimented with uh, changing the waveform, with adding individual overtones. And the, the first instrument uh, th th that I described in a magazine article, that was in 1954, uh, was an instrument uh, that offered several timbre variations. You said that you started working on theremins at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, I had read that you started working on theremins with your father. Yeah. It's interesting. Could you elaborate yeah. on that? Uh, my father had a complete shop in the basement of our house. And he was a very good all-around uh, woodworker. And he was an electrical engineer himself. So he, he knew about electronics. And in fact, he was one of the very earliest uh, amateur radio operators, licensed amateur radio operators. So he, he knew a little bit about electronic circuitry and about building electronic equipment. And uh, I used to like to work with him. I learned how to, in my first experiences with electronics, were doing things with him. And also my first experience making something out of wood or something out of steel were with him. When you entered your formal electronics education, mm -hmm. what did your teachers think of you working in these different electronic musical instruments? It was transparent to them. Um, when I started my engineering education, this is now my fourth year in college, I began uh, my engineering education. Uh, I was very busy and I didn't have much chance to <laughs> in, indulge in uh, hobbies, electronics or otherwise. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a big engineering class. The, class, uh, the, the individual classes were, were formal and large. The professor got up and talked and he didn't have much of an idea of what his students were interested in. That he just told you the engineering things you had to know. When did you start incorporating innovation into pre-existing technology? Well, uh, it's hard to to identify an abrupt point, but uh, a lot of what I did, even in the early days, uh, was. Uh, ideas that seemed right to me. Uh, I had no way of knowing whether they were innovation or not. They just seemed right. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it was that way. Uh, it was always that way. And little by little, uh, the, uh, the contributions I made to the state of electronic musical instrument art became more and more substantial. Uh, you know, as, as I learned what other people did and uh, avoided doing the same thing myself. Were you met with acceptance or resistance when your professors started to realize your pursuits? Well, by the time I was a graduate student, uh, I, I had a little part-time business. Uh, the, the, the theremins were pretty good by that time. Now, now we're talking uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I uh, 
I spent quite a bit of time building instruments myself, one at a time. I had a, a, a sales representative, a man by the name of Arnold Carl Westfall, who uh, was an itinerant preacher. And he introduced the theremin to a, a lot of people like him who went from church to church, putting on services that were very often musically based. And the, the theremin turned out to be uh, very good for that sort of thing. So he was out there getting sales, and I was, you know, I was taking the time to fill those orders. And my thesis advisor eventually found out what I was doing. Uh, it's nothing I, I ever brought into the university. It's just. It sort of leaked out that I was working on this, and uh, you know, he started to put up the heat on me to to, to uh, finish <laughs> finish my doctoral dissertation, so that then I could do what I want, and he wouldn't have to put up with me. So, would we consider that the beginning of Moog Music as a company? It was very much a part-time business. Uh, starting in 1954, there was we there was. Something called the R. A. Moog Company, but that was my father and me. And uh, you know, once uh, I left home, it, it was just me, just a, a one part-time person. Uh, the first time that I think you could call it a serious business was in 1964, uh, when I decided to more or less become a full-time business, even though my doctoral dissertation wasn't quite done and uh, my thesis advisor put up with that for about one year and then one night at nine o'clock when we were uh, the whole group of us finishing a special custom order for John Cage uh, and uh, it wasn't going well uh, there was some problem with the components we were using. It was nine o'clock at night. My thesis advisor called me up and he said, Moog, he said, whatever is not on my desk 10 o'clock tomorrow morning is not going in your thesis. Good night. And that's how I finished my PhD thesis. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess by that point, uh, uh, you know, the, we, uh, the company existed as a full-time company. Uh, and that was that was 1965, and we uh, I had already taken orders for uh, synthesizer modules then. Who were your clients? Mostly uh, composers in universities, experimental composers, a few private experimental composers, and very occasionally uh, someone in the commercial field who had the. Uh, the, the, the foresight to understand what could be done with this funny electronic stuff. Were there any novelty songs that came out in the 60s that you recall that had your instruments in them and they became famous because of the sounds of your instruments? In the late 60s, uh, there were many so-called Moog records. Well, what happened uh, was that uh, after the first few years of our making synthesizer equipment for avant-garde and experimental composers, uh, various people from the pop music field and the musical mainstream uh, began to learn what we were doing and began their own experimentation. 
So once again, that was Dr. Robert Moog. Uh, always really inspiring to hear from him. Another big name in synthesizers, obviously. Um, but from one big name to the next, next up, we are going to be hearing from Malcolm Cecil. I mean, two huge pioneers in our industry. I mean, it's just kind of overwhelming. I'm, I'm <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm also thinking of some recommendations for those who would like to hear a little bit of uh, Bob Moog's innovations. Uh, the mini Moog in particular was well recorded in popular music. Uh, Lucky Man by um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer is probably the best example in my opinion. Uh, great tune and Keith Emerson, who we also got to interview, um, does an amazing job manipulating that instrument and knowing its ins and outs. Um, they were close friends by the way. Um, Kraftwerk also did a great recording of the Autobahn that uh, is definitely worth listening to. And then a little bit more uh, recent, um, but another great example of the fact that the Moog is still being recorded is Pink uh, and her keyboardist utilize it in a number of her albums, including the song Wish You Were Here. Um, that is definitely the Moog. So um, <laughs> some good examples of what his synthesizer has been doing in popular music. And speaking of that, <laughs> the next guy, uh, Malcolm Cecil, uh, my gosh, I'll just say now while we're on a roll of recommendations, um, his instrument uh, is lovingly known as Tonto. And uh, Tonto is on one of my all-time favorite Stevie Wonder tunes called Boogie on Reggae Woman. Um, and that's the um, that's Tonto throughout the whole intro and throughout the uh, the whole song. And so that gives you a really good example of what he was doing. And, you know, what a remarkable guy. You know, we just lost him uh, a couple of months before this taping in 2021. And um, he was a, a charming, charming guy. Um, it's amazing how many pictures with people he ran into were on Facebook following his passing. Mm. I, hundreds of them. He never hesitated to pause and talk with anybody who would come up to him. And um, he had a wonderful following and a great group of friends. And, you know, he started out in jazz clubs in the UK and um, which is a re kind of a remarkable stretch. You wouldn't <laughs> think that that would be the guy who also invents these amazing instruments, but hanging out with like Rob, Ronnie Scott in tr jazz trios in the 50s um, is sort of a long way from introducing a, a whole new uh, synthesizer. But in fact, he did it. And along with uh, Robert Mogoloff, uh, they created Tonto, uh, the original the is the T and I, it tripped me up for the longest time. Like, where does the T come from? It's the, okay. the original new timbral orchestra. I think. Yeah. That's yeah, sounds good. That's what Tonto <laughs> stands for. And um, certainly the first multi timbral uh, polyphonic analog synthesizer. Um, so pioneering that whole aspect of sense. Uh, was just one of the uh, the nuances of his career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I mean his career is, I mean it's so fascinating to me because it's just like you said he started off with in jazz clubs, but then moved over into the military and did a lot of 
um, a lot of stuff with that and like radar and different things. And then stumbled into the, well, not stumbled, but, you know, stumbled into the U.S. <laughs> and kind of became <laughs> this, uh, you know, synth uh, guy and created Tonto and was working with Bob, uh, with Bob Moog and stuff. So it's just uh, his background and, and story is fantastic. And um, we're going to hear a little bit of, of it. I, it was hard to pin down the best part of his interview to really showcase who he was, but uh, I think I did a decent job of, of at least capturing some of the amazing things he did. So we're going to hear a little bit from him now, uh, just talking about his time in the U.S., and kind of uh, how he started working with synthesizers and then the creation of Tonto. So here is Malcolm Seethel. I did get posted down to uh, London, and the guy who was in London got transferred over. We, it was a transfer posting. He, he, he came to where I was, my job, I went to his job. It was like, this is weird. But it got me close to the clubs. That was when I went back and went with Ronnie's. So Tonto. How does this relate to Tonto? Well, that was where I got all my background in voltage control, so I really understood what was going on inside these uh, instruments. And when I finally arrived in America, um, the only way that I could come in was not as a musician, but was as a, 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 a skilled worker in short supply. I think they called it Schedule 6 or something, uh, where uh, as... A, I, I was shown a whole series of... Uh, I went to an immigration lawyer, and he said, well, you can't come in as a musician, that's for sure. What else? You can do any of these things. And he handed me this piece of paper. And I started at the A's, and I got to audio video repairman. I said, I can do that. He says, that's it. That's what we'll bring you in at. But you're going to have to find a job doing that. And I said, well, that's no problem. I'm already working, to, you know, fixing studios. So I was uh, building Pat Boone's first, the first 16 track studio in LA, which was Pat Boone's uh, Sunwest Studios. I put, I put the first 16 track machine in there. Um, and so, anyway, to cut a long story short, I was about a year um, in LA trying to get into the country under this, uh, you know, audio video repairman thing. And they turned me down three times, and eventually, I thought, well, I have to go back to England, but I'm going to go see New York first. I'm going to go via New York. And Tom Hidley, who you may have heard of, uh, used to be Westlake Audio, but prior to Westlake Audio, he was the chief engineer of Record Plant. And prior to that, he was the chief engineer at JBL, Speakers. So his whole thing was about speakers and about, uh, in fact, his, his biggest design was the monitors, um, the, the, the Hidley monitors with the, what we call the Hidley lips, the wooden things that look like big fat lips. Um, that was his major claim to fame. That and the whole room, he treated the whole room as one loudspeaker, as you know, a stereo loudspeaker. It was a very clever idea. He was a brilliant man. Anyway, he was having trouble with the record plant in New York uh, they were going to go public, and to do that, they were going to sell out to a company called TVI, which was already a public company, traded on the stock exchange. They were just going to plainly buy out uh, the New York record plant. But the deal was that because they were on the stock exchange and they were a public company, they were union. None of the engineers or any of the staff at record plant were union. They were all non-union. And the word had got out that this deal was going down, and that there was a clause in the contract which said that on a particular date when transfer was to happen, all the staff would be fired, but all the equipment had to be in perfect working order. Well, what does that mean? 
if you're an engineer and you're working in New York and you know that your job is dependent on the equipment being in good order on a certain date, you're going to make sure it isn't. <laughs> so that's what was going on. He was, the engineers were breaking the equipment and he had sent his best guy out there and he couldn't keep up. And he had heard through the grapevine that I was a pretty crack uh, technician and maintenance guy. And um, I needed, he said, I'll tell you what, um, we'll do a deal with you. We'll sponsor you, Record Plant will sponsor you into the States if you spend six weeks working up until the day, it was six weeks away from that date. If you go to, when you go to New York, you spend six weeks there working at the Record Plant and make sure that we get through that that day, that's your job, is to make sure that we pass inspection. Everything has to be working. Don't care what you have to do, you have to do that. So I would go in at five o'clock at night and I'd work all night and find out what the hell was going on and got on top of it and it went down. And that's how I got into the country. That's how I became, uh, you know, that's how I became, I got my green card. So uh, I was a scab. <laughs> But at the time, that was the that was the objective was to was to get into the country, uh, and so. But I had to do the job. I mean, I couldn't, uh, and I had to turn down. I was playing uh, the guitar club with Jim Hall uh, because um, Ron Carter and Jim Hall were having problems because it was the era when the, the jazz guys uh, Ron Carter was getting flack because he was playing with a white guy, and so uh, Jim Hall invited me. To, to come down, what he, what he would do, the guitar club was just on the, on the block, just around the corner from Media Sound. And so he would call me up at about 8.30. Ron didn't show again tonight, I just did the first set. Do you want to come and play the last couple of sets with me? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Lock up the place, grab my bass, walk down the, around the corner with the bass, play the two sets with, with Jim Hall. Jim Hall wanted me to go on tour with him uh, on, a, on a college tour. Couldn't do it because I wasn't in the union, number one. I couldn't tell him I wasn't in the union. So it, he thought that the reason that I wasn't doing it, because it, that was the time when I'd met Stevie and everything, he thought that I was, as he put it, selling out to Stevie. And uh, that was why I wouldn't do it. But it was actually not the reason. Jim's passed away now, so you know he'll never know this. <laughs> it's safe to speak. Uh, but... Um, uh, that was that was a, a big choice I had to make, and uh, when I when I arrived in New York after I'd finished the record plant gig, of course six weeks I had to be fired too, so it was only a six week gig, and Chris Stone signed my papers, immigration papers, and so on, uh, and he also gave me a piece of paper, and on one side it said an address, and on the other side it had a name, Bob Walters, the address was 315 West 57th Street. The address of Media Sound. And he said, Take, go to this address, ask for this man, and tell him that Chris Stone says he needs you. Uh, I've done anything like that before, but I thought, hey, this is New York, you've got to do what you've got to do. And so I was getting ready to go to, 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 to you know, go back to California because that was where I knew everything was going to work. But I, I, my papers were here coming through, uh, actually New Jersey was coming through, I was coming in through, through uh, uh, New Jersey. So I, I had to be within range. So I thought, well, this is worth doing. So I go by there and uh, ended up getting the chief engineer's job at Media Sound. And that was where I first saw the mug. And it turned out that 
MediaSound was an advertising studio. They did ads all day long, an hour strings, an hour horns. They had an eight-track machine. Later, 12-track, they put 12-track, it's still a one-inch machine. I put the first 16-track studio in New York in, in MediaSound. So I did the first four-track in, uh, in London for, for the Marquee, National Geographic Federation, the first 16-track studio in LA for uh, um, Pat Boone, and the first 16-track studio in New York for MediaSound. Those are the three, uh, I, I put those, those are the three studios with the first two-inch machines uh, in, in, in the States. And I had actually had to go to Redwood City to be trained and all that, which Pat Boone paid for, which was very good. So I ran into uh, the, the Moog in the, um, in the ISO booth of the Studio A, which was a converted church. Uh, and um, there's this thing, I didn't know what it was. I'm looking at it, and I started work there, and I'm looking at this thing, and it says... Uh, Voltage-controlled oscillator. Well, know what those are. Yeah, easy, no problem. Voltage-controlled filter. Yeah, no problem. Envelope generator. You could do bail with this thing. <laughs> Actually, I I couldn't figure a lot of it out. Sequencing. I don't know what this is. So, and envelope follower. What the hell is that? Reverberator. I know what that is. So. so I knew what some of the stuff was. Now, there was an ignition switch on, a car ignition switch on the thing that somebody had put on. And listen, I'm a ta I, I, I could just go around the back and take a jumper wire and, and, I'm, and I'm in. But I figured somebody's going to go to the trouble to put an ignition switch on the thing. They don't want you to do that. That's not, that's not, that's not kosher, so don't do that. So I didn't. And I made some inquiries, and I found out that the instrument belonged to one Bob Margraff, um, who was related to me as being a rather strange bird that um, didn't get on very well, didn't, he, didn't, he, he didn't play well with others, uh, but he was the Mogustin residence. And what that meant was that when the ad called for a special sound effect, for example, Ford Torino, <laughs> that was Bob doing, <laughs> it wasn't music at all. It was all about making sound effects. So he was the sound effects guy at Media, uh, Media Sound, and he, he would do like an hour session. And all he could record on was one track. Okay, so they allocated him one track. And so he only knew how to record on one track. None of the engineers would show him how to run the board or anything. And he really didn't know. He was, he was uh, um, well, he was an interesting guy, but he certainly wasn't a tech. So that was your introduction to the Moog. Yes, um, my, the introduction happened as a, as a result of uh, my being in that particular place at Media Sound at that particular time. And it took five days before Bob, Mo Bob Margolef showed up. Not Bob, Mo Bob Margolef. Uh, and he showed up at 11 o'clock at night. It was a November evening, very cold. He had a long fur coat on and hair down to his waist. And uh, he really looked quite imposing. And he shows up and walks in. I'm in Studio A with the board open. And he walks into the room and uh, looks at me and he says, Ah, you must be the new tech. And I said, yes. And I looked at him and said, And you must be Bob Margaret. he says, Yes. So I said to him, Hmm. I said, uh, he says, Tell me, do you know how to run that thing? And he points to the board. I said, I'd better. I have to fix it. 
<laughs> so I said to him, do you know how to run that thing? And I point to the Moog. And he says, I'd better, I own it. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what. You show me how to work that, I'll show you how to work this. He sticks out his hand, he says, deal. And we shook on it, and we started that night. And um, first piece we did was, he had already recorded about uh, complete tapes, one inch tape, with one track. And he said, I knew how to record on one track. Nobody told him, sort of how to change tracks, how to overdub. He, he, in those days, you had to do flip a switch on the board and everything changed, you know, it was the remix version of the board or the record, you know, you know it, was, it was the old boards in the old days. So, um, old analog stuff. So, anyway, he, uh, we, we struck up this relationship and he had recorded one complete pass on tape and it was like, well, how do you change that? So we change to the next track, go through it, and I'm just standing there watching, you know. And um, he had this pile of patch cords around his neck, and he'd stand there, plug a patch cord in, look, you know. and I'd say, it's gonna be, I'm, I'm working, I'm working. All the time, I'm working. Never told me a damn thing. I had to watch everything. After about three or four days of this, I said, is there a manual for this thing? Well, I've got some paperwork at home. Why don't you bring it in for me? <laughs> so I got into that. And then I found out that the keyboards didn't track. The oscillators and the keyboards, you could only get them to tune over about two octaves. This is a very common problem in those days, which is why it wasn't being used for music. Also, you could only play one note at a time. There's a keyboard there, you go, only one note plays. And it's always the lowest one. That's strange, you know. And, and if you hold down a low note, you press another note higher, nothing happens. But if you press a note lower, so what is going on here? <laughs> this is not right. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is supposed to be for music. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to fix this. So I'm on the phone to the factory, and I talk to the guy called Ray Updike. And, oh, yeah, well, we talk. And, and uh, well, do you understand about voltage? Yeah, sure. I was in the Air Force. We did have this volume. We discussed the whole thing. And he said, oh, okay, well, then I'll send you some circuits down. And anyway, Bob Moog turned up with a bunch of circuits and showed me some stuff and everything. And we talked. And we tried to get these thing in tune and everything. And then he started to tell me the story about how it was really he hadn't designed it as a keyboard instrument. And it was like Herb Deutsch's idea, because Herb had a piano store. And he, wanted, he thought that the keyboard was the right interface, and so on and so forth. And um, anyway, I came up with a solution, a relatively easy solution to the tuning problem. Um, it provided you settle for one note, and basically what I used to explain to um, the clients was, you know, like Richie Havens and so on and so forth, uh, he didn't play keyboard much anyway, but you know, he would like to play a few notes here and there. Oh, I hear this melody, then he could pick out a melody and so on, and he would play, and I would have to explain to him, no, you have to lift, lift, it's, you know, put my hand underneath the wrist, lift, lift. Lift. They won't play. Lift. Lift. Oh, okay, okay. Eventually, they would get that. But the tuning thing was a problem. This little device. Now, this is the current version of it. The old one didn't look 
quite as uh, pretty as this. Um, this is one that I built up uh, about two years ago. Uh, and I was using it at the, uh, the NAMM show uh, when the, they, they re released the Moog 35 modular and they had me mo demonstrate it for two days. I brought this because it's vital. And what this is, is the way that we keep in tune. And I had a different version of it, slightly different. It was an aircraft controller. This is an aircraft controller as well. Okay, now you've seen joysticks on synthesizers. You didn't see them before I designed this thing. The only joystick that was ever on any synthesizer was on the Putney, and it wasn't like this. It was just like X Y, and it didn't it didn't spring to the center. You couldn't use it for tuning. You couldn't use it to pitch bend. It didn't have a. There was no. There was no balance on. Now, what I decided was there were two things. First of all, there's pitch. Pitch is horizontal. And it always springs back to the center. Okay. Up and down. That is, I decided to use that. Uh, you can use it for whatever you want, but there's, there's two, you can plug the voltage into anything. One of them is vertical, one is horizontal. And you, the, the idea of the vertical one, if you put that into the voltage-controlled filter, it controls the timbre of quality. And as you open up the filter, so the quality becomes more bright more brash. So you can actually use it as the very first, it was the very first way that we got touch sensitivity. You couldn't have touch sensitivity with the keys at that time. That was very early on. That was a, a, a system that we developed much later with a guy called Armand Pesetta. And uh, I have his controller here too. But the idea was that in the vertical position, it stayed where you left it. Okay. So you could have like muted, like very, very quiet sound here and more brash up here. So you could get a, a sort of a, a touch sensitivity vertically and you could tune it this way. And you could pull it into tune with the palm of the hand like this with this guy, which was very, very fine micro tuning. So that as you go up high, just like I used to see the trumpet players in the old days, they used to have a ring on the uh, on the third valve so that they could pull it in so that they could be in tune and, uh, because it, it goes out of tune the harmonics go out of tune as you go higher and, and I thought we could, we could do that here and this sets the range one of them is vertical one of them is horizontal very very simple very very simple but very effective it worked absolute dream this is how we got lots and lots of sounds that nobody else could make nobody knew how we did it those days, everything was secret. So this was the very simplest first invention, the first thing that I did when I got to the Moog. And then we decided... What did we, you call it? Just, just a joystick. That's all we called it. Oh. Just a joystick. We didn't have any special name for it. We weren't going to sell them. Yeah. I never manufactured them to sell. Right. See, that's the thing. I didn't want to be a manufacturer. Well, a terrible thing to say in this video, but um, I didn't want to manufacture. But I'd give my ideas to manufacturers and say, do this. I did, I did the same thing with Tom Oberheim. I said to him, man, you should put this together. You should have a polyphonic keyboard and you should make a polyphonic, uh, uh, um, a polyphonic uh, synthesizer. And he was like, hmm, hmm. This was in 1971 at the AES show. Uh, up at the Hilton Hotel in L.A., and it was uh, Westlake put uh, Tonto up on the stand there, which was pretty pretty good. Um, anyhow, uh, 
the polyphonic keyboard was it wasn't possible to do analog it required at least six contacts to be made on every and it's too heavy to push down it's too much of a waste of time to do it with a with a uh, with a relay um, because of the, of the delay of the, of the contacts and you have to have lots of relays and it's like no this is not the way to go so armor Pesetta um, showed up out of nowhere one day and uh, we dis- we were discussing how it could be done and um, it, t- it took a couple of years and about $27,000 of investment but that time the money was flowing because we were, uh, we were playing with everybody everybody wanted Tonto and so it was worth it was an investment from our, from our point of view and we came up with the first we, it was supposed to be a 12 voice keyboard but we could never get more than five of the voices going and we ended up with a four voice version of it that Armand made which was okay um, but um, when I demonstrated it to uh, uh, Tom Oberheim and a few other synthesists, uh, Beaver and Krauss and uh, Ruth White and everything. We had, I had this thing in L.A. Uh, where I demonstrated the five notes being played simultaneously. Um, I said to Tom, hey, you know, we should go into business. You, you, here's the guy who does the keyboards. You, let's, let's talk. No, I don't want to know how it works. I'm going to make my own. <laughs> Which he did. <laughs> so, you got to get the non-disclosure signs. <laughs> You learn stuff as you go. <laughs> anyway, we didn't have any non-disclosure, and I wouldn't see Tom anyway. Tom's a friend, um, and he did he did a good job. So uh, I have no problem. I have a two voice over there. Of the, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I, I'm sort of seeing what I've got left after Tonto left. Now Tonto's up in Calgary, uh, and I'm very happy about that. Incidentally, it's not a sad thing at all. Uh, I was. David Keen helped with that. David Keane, no, don't oh. think so. He may have done, but I didn't oh. know about it. No, there um, the, the, the was uh, uh, a, a deal that was done um, through Bob Margaleff, uh and uh, what was the... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Escapes me. Names, 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 first things to go. Uh, but um, he... he uh, the, the, the deal went down very, very quickly, once we had made the connection, but I had been looking for seven years. Uh, I had turned down Yale because they didn't... Well, the first place I turned down was Smithsonian. They wanted to put it in mothballs in the basement. They wouldn't guarantee me that it would be a working exhibit. Yale didn't have the space and couldn't guarantee a working exhibit. Cornell were like, well, we've got the bog mode papers and so on and so forth. Because I said, well, this is a big thing and they saw the size of it and everything that didn't work. Bard College wanted it. They came close but they didn't have a space for it and they didn't have the tech to support it. So I, I realised that I had five conditions and the five conditions were first of all there had to be a tech that could keep it running. Secondly it had to be available for the general public to actually use, under supervision of course, but to actually, hands on, it had to be a working exhibit. Uh, number three, it had to be available for making uh, albums, records, you know, for recording. So that would require a recording facility, because Tonto moves, but not that easily. Uh, it takes, you know, a team of 
half a dozen heavies to move that thing. Um, and then the other, the next thing was it needed to be able to be used for live performances, which would require a stage and you know some sort of performance space. And last but not least, I want to be able to teach seminars and courses on synthesis on it. So those are my five conditions. And the only place that fulfilled those five conditions was the National Music Centre up in Calgary. Plus the other thing, although at the time this wasn't a consideration, but in, in hindsight I realised very importantly that although the, the uh, National Music Centre is a combined effort between the Canadian government and private enterprise, what it is is the private enterprise buys or donates money to, to donates equipment and then the government pays for the space and the maintenance and, and the staffing. So it's going to be there forever. It's not going away. And that's, that, that makes me feel good because, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm pushing 80. How much longer am I going to be here? But Tonto is going to survive me. And it's, it was working. It was blooping and bleeping when it went out of here. And it's, I'm, I'm hoping to go up there. I was supposed to go up there last summer, but unfortunately they weren't ready. They're, build, they're behind with their building plans. Um, and when, when year did Tonto come about? It started in 1969, 19, maybe 1970, actually. And what was the original concept? The original concept was to have a synthesizer, to have a, a synthesizer orchestra, the original new timbral orchestra, T-O-N-T-O. -O. So the original, because it's the first, new timbral, because we were making new sounds, and an orchestra, because it was the whole thing, the whole idea was that we didn't need anything else. And I was a very I was a very purist back in my younger years. And I carried that purism into the electronic music field because the first album we did had nothing but Tonto on it. It was just synthesizer, nothing else. The second album, we opened up a little and we used a, a, some, a few acoustic instruments and some other musicians and some interfaces and so on. I, I began to loosen up. I'm much looser these days. But uh, at that time, it was like, prove it. You know, it, this is a complete instrument entirely on its own. It was sort of in the tradition of my grandfather, really, because he used to play the Wurlitzer. And it was like, you know, that was a complete instrument on its own, uh, on its own. It didn't need anything else so that was the, I think that was what was in the back of my head maybe that was subliminally what was going on in my head but the idea was that we wanted an orchestra of synthesizers plus once you get a good bass sound you're going to have to if you only have one synthesizer you're going to have to break that sound down to go get another sound and now you'll never get back to it that's the thing about analog is you can never get back to it never can it's not just where the dials are and where the patch cords are. It's the process you go through to arrive at the final sound. And it doesn't last. That's the other thing we found when working with Stevie, like we would do a bass line and he'd go bass, oh yeah, I just got to dub in that first part of the, you know, the, the bridge on the second, uh, second chorus. And you go, uh, uh, okay, and we go in, punch in, and we hadn't touched any knobs. But you could hear the difference straight away. As soon as you punched it, that's not the sound. What happened to the sound? And we would try. We could never get it back. So it, it just evolves over time because analog, it's not 
fixed. Everything's drifting against everything else. So it got to be uh, almost jazz-like when we would get, it'd be like, get the sound, get the sound. Okay, we got the sound, let's get the track, let's get the track. And it was, it was like, even though we were recording, there was that urgency that you have under a live playing situation because we knew that the sound wouldn't last. So that I think that that's got a lot to do with the energy that's in those records. Is because we were, we were, we, we, we were winging it. So guys, that is the end of this fantastic episode talking about um, some of the synth pioneers and uh, their backgrounds and just where this all came from, which is uh, quite the story and mm -hmm. has, you know, all these different angles to it and people uh, learning off of others and, and proving and, you know, just amazing story. Uh, I don't know if I still fully understand it, but I think I understand it a little bit more. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> I definitely am very impressed and, um, you know, definitely appreciate the work that they've done and the innovations that they've made and what, you know, the contributions to music as a, as a whole That's fantastic. And I was just thinking that, uh, our listeners who are still listening to this podcast probably know a few more things than we do. So <laughs> if you have any recommendations of other pioneers or other players in the industry um, that have contributed, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to library at nam.org. Easy as that. We'd love, we'd love it. And um and my final thought about this podcast is thinking about that great Malcolm Cecil hanging out with him. I do believe he should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And when they do, his overalls should be on display. <laughs> Those are great overalls. <laughs> Which you would know if you were watching the video version of this podcast. <laughs> and that's point. a perfect segue into <laughs> head over to nam.org, namm.org. A lot of these interviews that we heard today have their full video version posted. So if you want to see more, we have the full interview posted there. And uh, this podcast has a video version, if you didn't know, also posted on nam.org. Um, so check it out if you get a chance. You can see those overalls and you can see the uh, his um, joystick. Oh yes, yeah, showing off too. That's so you know, true, there's a yeah. lot, there's a lot to catch in mm -hmm. the videos. <laughs> yes, I highly encourage it. Check it all out; it's all great. Um, thank you so much for listening and watching. We will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. And until then, bye bye, bye bye, bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. <laughs>